welcome to the Smokies and Wine podcast with JB and Jamie with the best guests, wine and chat. You know it makes sense. Sponsored by Clackenview Wealth Management, working with you today to plan for your tomorrow. Gary Wilson, the Tyneside Terror, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. That's probably the best way to start it. Who comes up with these names? Do you come up with that, or is that a management thing? Or no, that was um, it was actually something you know, Rob Walker, the MC for the all yeah. the snooker. Yeah, well, obviously he comes up with most of the names. He he does it, and like years before him, it was Alan Hughes who came up with the nicknames when he was MCing. But it was it was when I got to the Crucible for the not the first time against Ronnie, the second time when I done well and I got to yes. the semis. Um, he just sort of tried to come up with one. Around the first round, then Tyneside Terror was one of them he came out with, and it didn't really stick. I wouldn't say, but like after a little while, like I'd been thinking myself, obviously, if I'm going to start doing decent in the game and like actually making a bit of a name for myself, what what would be my nickname? You know, and no one could ever think of a decent one. I mean, you've got Kyron Wilson, yeah, who's obviously the warrior, and obviously that's taken anyway. But it's not really a great nickname, is it? To be honest, but really? I thought, well, what would I have? Like, oh, there's Walls End Warrior, or the Walls, something to do with Walls End, maybe, or something. Couldn't think, could never think of a decent one. And I thought, well, to be fair, it's not brilliant. But out of all of them I've heard, Tyneside Terror, it's not the worst. So it just stuck, really. And I said to him a few tournaments later, I think, I think in the UK, as I says, just stick with that one. Right. I says, it's not the best, but it's the best I can think of. So, <laughs> so there's uh, no point us coming up with stuck. a new one for you. No, nah, if you honestly <laughs> feel free if you can think of something decent, but we'll I've never been able to think of a decent one. Show. We're thinking. But, um, <laughs> I think we're that's stuck be, um, now. I've actually got a few like pictures and stuff and bit, like bits of merchandise with that on now, you know. Have so you? I think that's gonna, that's gonna be it now. It has to be, doesn't it? That's it. Aye. And what what's your uh, walk on music as well? What partners up with that? Well, that's another funny one. Um the BBC are really funny with stuff like that. So originally when I got to the first time at the Crucible, I put on like the local hero song, you know, for like the same as what the Newcastle what uh, United oh, walk right. out yeah, to yeah. in the stadium. Great, great tune to walk out to. Obviously, it reminds you of Newcastle United, and it's just a really good tune, you know. Uh, Mark Knopfler, obviously, from the Northeast as well. Yeah. So I, I played that the first time when I played Ronnie there on my debut. And then for some reason after that, they wouldn't let us play that song. And I says, what do you mean? They says, well, it's all to do with legal things, like legal rights and stuff and all that. And I was like, so basically like someone from... Mark Knopfler's management or something like that just don't yeah, want okay. aren't, aren't allowing me to play it is that is that what it is and they said it's something like that yeah you've got to get them approved so I wasn't allowed that and I changed it to something else just another song that I quite like um, which I've I've used ever since really because I even tried Jimmy Nail and stuff like that and they wouldn't let us play like any songs any songs that I wanted really it was all like getting stopped you know so and it's the same for free with the other players especially with the BBC you know so for some reason, yeah, they're they're quite tight on what songs you can you can and can't play. But the one I play at the minute, um, a song called, well, it's by Neon Trees called Animal, mm-hmm. and I, I just heard it years ago. I really liked the song and thought it was good to walk out to. So, uh, that's that's what I play at the minute. I think you should come on to Let's Get Ready to Rumble by Ant and Deck. <laughs> well, That'd again, the if they allow it, who knows? I, <laughs> honestly, I've I've, I've given them about five or ten songs, and they just not can't have that. Nope, can't have that. There's no real reason behind it. It's just whether they've got the rights to use it, you know? Yeah. Strange. Frigging in the rigging sex pistols. That's what you should do. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's go back to the, the, the snooker career. Could you start a, probably the youngest out of most of the people that we've we've spoken to in the past in your in your sporting right. career? Were you about three when you picked up a cue? Uh, I kind of, um, I mean, not really, but yeah, I, like a lot of players, I got a, a small table for Christmas. Um, when I was two, two and a half, maybe. I don't think I was out of nappies. <laughs> yes, it was like it was like a four foot by two foot table where you just folded the legs out and you could yeah, have yeah. it like that. But obviously, I, I wouldn't have been able to play with it with the legs out, so it used to just be folded up and on the floor. And um, I've actually got a picture which has been on the news before and stuff as well of me when I'm like two and a half year old on the living room floor with this big old-fashioned marble mantelpiece next to us with the old box telly next to it and me just on the floor, me little cue playing snooker, you know, and that's a, with a cheese toastie or something next to us as well, I think. So. Uh, that's you were a bit started. of a hotshot protégé, weren't you? Uh, you well, your century breaks, I was younger. You were young, yeah, weren't you? First century when I was nine, so 
I, the first time I went to play on a proper snooker table, like a full size, was eight years old. I went down to my local club, Walls End Super Snooker. My dad took us down. Obviously, he's seen us on this small table in the house for a few years and yeah. thought, oh, he's got some talent here. Like straight away, I was picking up the cue action, the bridge hand and all that sort of stuff. And when I was eight, he took us down the club, like I say, and uh, it didn't take as long before I was making like 20s and 30s quite quickly. And then um, I, about a year later, like I say, when I was nine, I made my first century break as well. So I was I, I progressed quickly. Um, from a young age, uh, I would say I was like up to a good standard making regular centuries really when I was like 12 years old, you know, so uh, mm. I progressed quite quickly. So what's your highest break now then? Oh, I've had maximums, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he knows, he knows. <laughs> well, how old were you when you got your first max actually? First one I ever had against somebody was one of the lads in the club I used to play at in Gateshead. Um I think I was 14, I would say 14, yeah, 14, 15. I think it was 14. The, the first one I ever had, like, on my own, I was 11 years old, like, just playing on your own, like, playing a frame with yourself on your own. Yeah, yeah. Um, but actually playing somebody, like, in a, you know, not competitive, but no, playing no, but yeah, in, just like, in a club game. game. Yeah, I, was, I think I was 14, yeah. Uh, and then after that, when I was 15, I was starting to get them a bit more regular. You'd have like maybe three or four a year when I was 15 or something, which isn't a lot. But when you're, when you're young, you know, you're making a few. You know, I started getting the habit of making them then. By the time I was 16, 17, they were quite regular. Yeah. What was the buzz like when you got that first max in and in the club? Because I don't know how many players of your standard are in that club, but was that the first yeah. max that anybody's had in the club or? Uh, no, wait, there's a, quite a bit of tradition in the uh, Gator Snooker Centre, to be honest. You had the likes of, I don't know if you've heard of these players, but there was there was old guys called um, George Wood, and he used to be a player years ago who didn't do didn't do too much in the game, but he was a top amateur player. Right. Um, another one was Neil Mosley, so he was like world amateur champion. He turned professional as well. He won like the world amateur, the European amateur, the English amateur. CIU all in the same year. It was like it was a it was a record at the time. I think oh. 1992, 93. So there were some established like names from that club. Obviously, people had played them and seen maximums. But I was starting to come through when they weren't they weren't playing anymore. And yeah, the, the, the lad I'm talking about in question, I think it was Serkan. Um, he, he's a lad from the from the club who's played there for years and years. And I think it was the first one he's ever had against him. You know, so it was good for the both of us. <laughs> And what happened to those two guys? That guy you mentioned, Mosley, you said was really good. What happened to him? Did he not want to go pro or anything? Or? He, he turned pro, I So once he'd won all them amateur titles and all that kind of thing, he turned pro in the early, early the mid-90s. And it just didn't really work out for him, I don't think. I mean, I used to, he used to work behind the bar as well when I was playing. So he'd kind of finished by then and he was starting to see me come through and trying to help me out a little bit. We'd have some chats at the bar about this, that and the other. And, you know, he'd always like help us out with the little things. And yeah, he just... He just sort of, he, he turned pro, did, he, he struggled. I think he just struggled to win games and, and fulfil the potential he thought he had. I think he would tell you himself, he, he didn't bottle it or anything, but I think he just didn't feel like he could play play the, the same game he knew he was capable of on the professional level. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it just didn't didn't quite work out for him. What question on your technique as well, because you know how you cue across, like your chins across, the, has that always been the case or is that something, is that natural? Basically, always um, since I was nine. Um, for some reason, when I was when I was very young, um, it wasn't the case. Like when I was when I first started playing on a full size, like I say, when I was eight years old, I did I, I did actually have my chin on the queue for a very short period of time. But quite quickly, I think it slowly started moving over and moving over. And I've got there's a video of us when I was on the news down at um, the Crucible. I got invited there when I was nine years old to like speak with David Vine. <laughs> and have a little practice on the tables. And there's even a little video of us there and pictures of us there with the, with a cue across on the left-hand side. And I was only nine years old. So it must have been something that obviously when you're starting out kind of thing, you always have your chin on the cue, but yeah. it just naturally it just naturally moved straight away. So I knew it was it wasn't something I was forcing, it wasn't something I'd done on purpose or anything. It just it, it was the way I was naturally meant to play. So I just let it happen. Now, coming through then, like you say, you're talking about the, 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 the century breaks and the maximums. You were on junior big break a few times as well, weren't you? In your yeah, so days. again, like my old coach, Stan Chambers, who's just sadly passed away the last couple of weeks as well, going to his funeral oh, um, last week there. he's um, He was basically a Northeast legend for Snooker. He was an absolute ambassador for the game in the whole area. But he actually coached me when I was younger, first come through. Like I say, when I was in the club at first, 
with my dad. He spotted us straight away, got into his coaching schools on the Saturday mornings, going there all the time every week. And he, he obviously seen in me some talent straight away and he really wanted to help us as much as he could. And it was him that actually got in touch with the BBC and got us onto that junior big break the first time when I was nine years old. So obviously a lot of credit goes to him for a lot of things that I've been able to do as a junior, especially, you know, because he was always there trying to push for us and get us to do these sorts of things. So yeah, um, nine years old when I went on the first time and then obviously in, be invited us back again another two more times after that for the second and third series of the, it was called like the junior junior big break stars of the future or something. Yeah. yeah. So nine, 11 and 12 I was when I played on them. And what's it like? Can you can you take it in at that age? Just you know what's going on, or is it just oblivious to how a big big a deal that was? Yeah, the first one when I was nine, not really. It was all like really not scary, but like all dead new to us, and yeah. you know, big t- TV atmosphere and everything, big crowd. And I'm only nine years old, and I went on like sitting in my chair with my legs wobbling around. I can't even get my feet on the floor or anything like that, you know. And, Obviously, I know I know what I could do on the snooker table. So all I was thinking of there was just get me on the table and let's put a few balls. You don't even really realise what what it all entails at that age. And uh, but in looking back, it's obviously great experience at the same time as well. I was you know I was experienced in sort of TV atmosphere at nine years old, which is just priceless. You can't buy that, you know. So it's probably held us in good stead in the next few years. Can we find it on YouTube? Yeah, you can. Um, it's on somewhere. I don't know if it's on. I've actually looked on YouTube. Yeah, there's a lot of big break episodes on YouTube, but yeah. not the junior ones for some reason. I don't know why, but I don't know if I don't know if it's there now. But I could never find it. I tried a couple of years. Feels like you've got it on VHS somewhere. And you're I've got a it. video of it. I they gave away a video. Like every one that's on, they give you a video for it, and um, I've got that somewhere. Um, I've still got like boxes of videos, man. Like not kidding you. There's there's, there's two big cardboard boxes of VHS tapes in the loft that when we've been moving all sorts of stuff around, I've been sort of digging through and I found some old videos of when I was on the news and stuff. And like I say, a big break. Um, there was even my first, what you would call half televised game when I qualified for the Grand Prix. The first time I turned pro and I was only 18 or 19 years old and I played Steve Davis. So I've got I've got some videos somewhere and I've got, for, for the life of us, I kind of find any of it on YouTube. I don't know why they haven't like sort of put them on there because they've got all the other episodes from the main series. Now you did have a pretty decent amateur career though, because you were the U- under eighteen UK champ. Was it twice you won that? Uh, yes, I. So obviously, when I'm getting a bit older, then I was going at like 11, 12, 13. I'm by twelve, thirteen. I'm starting to play good stuff. As in, like on me day, I'm capable of like playing professionals, making hundreds and probably winning matches like that, you know, but obviously it's consistency at that age. But yeah, I would, I'd, I'd won the under-15s, the under-18s, like a lot of junior tournaments as well, like not just the the main like national ones, like monthly, when you would go to like monthly pro-ams, like monthly junior tournaments as well in Leeds and Leicester and they used to run loads of junior tournaments there and I would, especially in Leeds, I would generally win them virtually every time. And down Leicester, I would put on a good performance and win win a fair share of them as well, you know. So I was I was definitely established at the time as one of the better juniors. I was gain, gaining confidence year by year, just on the fact that like I was I was bossing things quite a bit, you know, as a junior. And um by the time I was like 16, 17, when you were saying I won the under 18s twice, that was when obviously I was wanting to push on and turn professional, but it didn't quite work out for a year or two. I left school at 15. And my mum was a little bit like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, obviously, I want to play snooker. Well, great, so <laughs> so do they all. But, like, really, <laughs> like, well, what are you going to do for now, though? I was like, well, I'm hoping I'll get I'll get on the tour next year. And luckily, she sort of gave us, gave us a bit of leeway for two or three years because it took us until I was 18 to actually get onto the tour. And luckily, I managed to get on from the Challenge Tour the first time of asking. So I did turn pro when I was 18, at least. So I was, it was a year or two when my mum was probably on my back a little bit, like, well, are you going to try and get a job or at least do something part-time as well? In the first year or two, I was like, nah, I'm just playing snooker all the time. So, yeah, luckily it kind of worked out for a bit, but then all went pear-shaped a couple of years later. <laughs> but I think that's the thing, though. A lot of people would imagine, right, you're on the main tour, the hard work's done. It's just yeah. really beginning, isn't it? Well, yeah, because you're not. it's not like big sports where you're, you're making money. With snooker, especially at the time, how bad it was, the pro game at the time, when I turned pro the first time, that was, like you say, that was just the start. Once you're getting on, all you're doing there is giving yourself the opportunity to possibly do okay, you know? And I was winning. What year would that have been, sorry? 
when you turned pro first time? What year? Uh, 2004. So I'd just won the World in the 21 Championships in Ireland. And yeah, so throughout them two years, when I was 18, 19, 20, on my first couple of years on the tour, I won matches. I'd I done okay in the first season. I stayed on. Because uh, you didn't get a two-year card then. It was only a one-year card for everybody as well. So it was even more cutthroat. You had to make sure you were sort of in the top 64 or the top eight on the one-year list to stay on the tour. And you only had one year to do it, you know. I managed to scrape in on the one-year list after my first year and then just struggled again the second year. I struggled the whole of the two years, really. But like I say, winning matches here and there and doing okay in some and not so good in others. But the prize money was terrible. You know, yeah. I, probably, I probably earned about six or seven grand in two years. How'd you survive? Uh, and that's good. That's good. Well, I didn't. No one does, do they? I mean, doing that, you've got to have something else if you're going to be making any kind of living. I mean, obviously, I was fortunate enough that I was still living at home. I didn't need to worry about bills, kids, anything like that. You know what I mean? It was just, it was just seeing if I could make a decent living out of it first, and uh, I didn't. I just made it. I made enough money to scrape by. I had a part-time job at the same time, pulling pints. Yeah, it was tough, and then dropped off. Dropped off the tour after my second year as well. So that was even more devastating. You know, I was I'd struggled for a couple of years, thinking, "Come on, like you're better than this. We need to push on here." And then you drop off. I dropped off by one match, as it happened in the World Championships, and I'll never forget it because I got beat off a lad called James Tatton, and um, it was ten eighty beaters, but it was eight all. And I remember he fluked frame ball in both of the two frames to go nine eight and ten eight. Which you can't blame. Like that, that, I never blamed that for losing. I just wasn't good enough at all throughout the whole game, really. It was a struggle. It just summed up me two years, to be honest. And I was devastated because obviously I was off the tour then. And again, it wasn't like what it is now, where now if you drop off, you can bounce back straight away in the following Q school and, and try and get yourself straight back on again. You couldn't then. You had to wait a whole year knowing you were going to have to play in the amateur tournaments instead and, and wait till the following year round before you could try again to get back on. So... I was I was like, oh, what am I going to do for a year now? I'm literally going to have to start getting a job now. Like, this is time to grow. You know, I'm like 20, 21 years old. I need to get a job because I'm going to have a whole year of amateur tournaments where, yeah, I might do all right, but I'm realistically going to be earning no money. So what's the point? Like, let's do, I'm going to have to do both. I'm going to have to just play a snooker and get a job. And that's when I started doing more bar work and um, worked in my local pub. I even worked at the factory that my mom used to work at, Findus. Yeah. I used to work there for a for a year and a half as well. Like so when it went, it went from ten till it went from six till ten in the morning part time to six till two full time. So it was just getting more and more to the point where I'm thinking, all right, it's actually okay. This I'm earning a bit of money, but <laughs> yeah, the snooker thought I had to take a back burner. Like I was playing and everything I could. Still, obviously, my ambitions were there to turn pro again and fulfil what I believed I could do because I knew I hadn't done that yet. But it was kind of in a way getting harder and harder because I was having to work more. And I was I was almost almost turning into a, a normal person, if you know what I mean. Like the, yes. the snooker aspirations were going out the window, and the work and life was coming into it. And then I started taxiing when I was twenty three. So yeah, it was like I started thinking, well, uh, whatever it'll be, it'll be. Now I'll, I'll try playing snooker. I'll try my best, but I'm I'm a taxi driver. <laughs> no, it was a strange, strange transition for a few years. It really was. And see all the travel you have to do when you're a pro as well. Where'd you get the cash for that? You know, I know you travel more now than back then, but you still have to travel around. It's not cheap, is it? Yeah, no, it's not. But back then it wasn't like, because there was only six tournaments a year, really. Um, the traveling side of things wasn't that bad. It was it was always down in Pontins in Preston, North Wales. That's where they had all the qualifiers for pretty much. Aye. So, but with only being, I think there was only one China tournament back then, the China Open. And I never qualified for it anyway. So I, I never tra I never travelled anywhere other than North Wales and somewhere in England, really. So the travelling costs for me actually weren't that bad. But if you did have to travel, you'd have to pay that yourself, yeah? Yeah, it's like, like you have to pay. It's like being self-employed. It's a, it's the same thing. So yeah, you pay for everything yourself. But back then, the prize money probably wasn't good enough to like cover much. Um, yeah. I think if you qualified for say China back then, and you paid for everything yourself. There'd be very little left over for yourself unless you won another match or two. You know? Poison chalice, wouldn't it? Going all the way out there, yeah. and beating the first round. To be honest, the Australian Open used to be like that. Um, it was, it was a, it was great in theory, but the, the prize money, the way they taxed you, I can't remember the exact figures, but yeah, you used to end up getting taxed nearly forty percent of your money. And it actually, believe it or not, worked out that there was a couple of qualifying rounds you had to play, not just one. I think it was two. 
So it worked out that if you won your first qualifying round, you would sit there and work it out and think, hang on a minute, if I win my second qualifying round and I go all the way to Australia, Melbourne to play, and then I get beat when I'm over there, it actually works out I've lost money. How, how can that be right? That's crazy. That's just the, the prize money was working out so that you were actually worse off if you qualified. <laughs> it was mental. So that soon went off the calendar. I don't know if it was to do with reasons like that, but it probably had half to do with this. Players were kicking up a fuss left, right, and centre. It was crazy. So, see, when you were when you you fell off the tour for that that first time there, and yeah. you you obviously had the game. You know, you were you were good enough. Um, yeah. What, what just what is the that small one or two percent? type of thing that makes the difference between those that that really kick on and, and those that just just drop off that tour because it's such a, a cutthroat thing. You, you're all yeah, of a good standard. A mixture of a couple of things, I would say, in my opinion. Um, one, you've got to have the ability to start with. Now, obviously, anyone who turns pro has got an ability to a certain extent, haven't they? But there's some that are just sort of maximising what they've got out of themselves and they're never really going to get any further. And they're the ones for me that you'll see keep dropping off the tour and back on again and dropping off and back on, yo-yoing on and off all the time. They're good players, but they're kind of reaching their potential almost, like there or thereabouts. And there's other players that maybe are just struggling for whatever reason, whether it be experience or expectation on yourself or anything like that. I think with me, it was, I knew I was capable of playing better than I did any throughout most of the, most of the matches in them whole two seasons but I just wasn't sort of feeling confident enough. I think there maybe was a bit of a lack of experience, um, a little bit of, a little bit frightened almost to fail because obviously I was putting so much work into it and I had been putting so much work into it for five, six, seven years, like properly. It just, uh, it just, it just didn't work out for me in, in the way I would have liked it to have done. You know, if a lot of players come through 16, 17, 18 year old and they're flying, they're away. I just struggled for quite a few years early on. And it, it maybe took like it maybe took getting jobs as a taxi driver and other work and stuff to maybe just maybe give us a fresh perspective on things. And that seemed to help me that for when I turned pro the second time round, I seemed to be like a different player. I was just more consistent, more more carefree, but at the same time determined as well. Yeah. As if like I didn't care now if I lost or played shite or <laughs> or anything, you know. It was it's just, all mental, isn't it? It's pretty much uh, mental. It's kind of like just accepting the fact that it could all go one of two ways. You could you could fly or you could be disgusting, and it doesn't matter either way as long as you try your best. Yeah. And that only comes, I think, from experience and, and taking the knocks as many times as you have. I think that's one of the reasons Mark Williams is playing so well recently. He's just given us a I don't give a shit attitude. But he's always had that. Uh, he's one of them. I, he's just he's elevated just, it, though. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and he's obviously at the stage of his career, and he's like he's like years now. Where yeah, he's. It's just more of a challenge for him now, just just to see if he can even stay in the top sixteen, and just yeah. he's got no worries, you know. Like I say, it's yeah. easier for these players who are like top of the rankings to not have these worries, I guess. But the ones who are lower down, and I've got more respect for them in in a certain sense that Definitely. they're fighting for their livelihoods. They've got a bit a bit more pressure on their shoulders, you know. Not whether that whether they're as good as the top players or not, they're, they're there for a reason, fighting and trying to make money, and they've they've got they've got more things to think about than some of the top players who've just got ambitions of winning tournaments. It must be nice in a certain sense, but at the same time, they've worked really hard to get there, you know? So, yeah, for me, for a while, it was just make a living. If I can make a living, it's a bonus. Anything after that, brilliant. And that's, luckily, I got to that stage about oh, seven years ago, six, seven years ago now, where I was like, right, I'm making a living. I can actually, because I was taxi driving for the first year and a half when I turned pro the second time round, yeah, 2013. Right. It wasn't until 2014, halfway through the year, the season where I said, right, I'm going to actually chuck the taxi in now because I was doing both. And obviously it's not ideal. You're trying to be a professional snooker player and you're going around in the taxis <laughs> like eight hours a day as well, you know? So and once I started making a decent living consistently, I was like, right, it's time to knock it on the head and give it a real proper good go. I think I'll, I think I'll be all right now. And in a way it was such a relief just to get to that stage where yeah. I'd never been before, where I can just rely on playing snooker to make me money. And um, it's something I felt I should have been in that position maybe seven years before that, you know. So, yeah, just everything's a bonus from that point, I guess. Now, everybody's different with their practice regime, but how, how often, like, what would you put in in a day's practice? You know, I've heard different stories, two hours, eight hours. What would you do? 
it it varies. I mean, if I'm if I'm playing consistently leading up the tournaments, um, especially now, a bit more now than what I did. I've got my own my own table to myself. I sometimes go in ten, eleven o'clock and finish at like five, six o'clock. So I'd say on average around eight hours a day if I'm doing it properly. So I'm a, I'm a shite of the game, so I need to do more than an hour a day. Better, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would uh, I would set aside ten hours if you can. <laughs> <laughs> but like I say, now that I've got my own table and a good setup as well, at balls, two star tables, tables running lovely. You feel you can invite players. In the past, I've never really had a situation where I'd feel like I'd want to invite players to my club and players okay. because the conditions I had were never quite good enough. Um, players wouldn't want to come and practice. Like, don't get us wrong, they were decent enough, but you weren't playing on a star table. You weren't playing on the the right conditions. Now we've had like lads come from Scotland, Leeds, all sorts, and then we'll go up to play Higgins, Maguire. You know, so it's like. You, you feel like it doesn't matter who it is now, you can invite them to come along and practice. So that's great because I've had a little bit of that so far in the last six months. But going forward this season, I'm definitely going to be hoping to invite quite a few of the players up to practice. You know, the the, the academy in Dalton's there, Q House. We'll accept that invite. No no worries. That's yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, you, might be able to, uh, you might be able to give us that extra 2% I'm looking for, yeah. So. <laughs> if you walk into an exhibition, let's say, and that's a Riley table, do you sort of go, oh, oh this is different? Generally, if it's a if it's a proper Riley aristocrat or a proper star table with the proper cloth on and you know the heat as and conditions, the only difference really is the slight look and the, the very small nuances in the way the pockets play. They're generally as tight as each other, but you'll probably find a lot of players would generally say the middle pockets are slightly tighter on the stars um, than what they were on the Rileys. But you also get a lot of people saying that maybe the corner corner pockets played a little bit tighter on the Rileys. They seem to slip in a bit easier now on the stars, but you're talking very, very small differences between them. You know, there's not that much in it to be honest. The BCEs from years ago, now they, oh, yeah. there was a difference there definitely. Like for me, there was there were just bigger pockets in general. Uh, nice tables, lovely people loved the BCEs. They were just a lovely table to play on, but the pockets were definitely bigger by far. You can watch old footage from the eighties and early nineties. And you can just, the silly things, you can see the way the balls were going in down the cushions. And I know people harp on about certain ones now when you see it on the telly. Oh, yes. We've been uh, <laughs> the ball hitting halfway up the cushion and going in. And to an extent, yeah, to also to an extent, the camera angle is probably lying to you a little bit as well. The camera is a funny thing when you're looking at it from the pocket side on a shot like that. It's just the, the new cloths and the, the new balls that let it help it slip in a lot more. But I'm talking about back in the day in the 80s and early 90s when people were slamming things in down the cushions and hitting the cushion as well before it even got to the pocket and they were still taking it, you know, and it, like that would just never happen these days. What One of the shots in particular, Stephen Hendry played Steve Davis in the UK final. Blue down the had cushion. A, yeah, he had a blue with a rest down the cushion. Now, the way he's hit that, if you if you if you play that on repeat, like on YouTube or whatever, and you look at you look slowly at what's actually happening, the blue hits halfway up the cushion and he's not rolling it in. He's not dropping it in dead weight. He's hitting it pretty pacey. And the blues hit halfway up the cushion and the pocket still took it. You know, and you're like, that would never, ever happen. As much as people think, oh, the pockets are big these days. And that, that, that's certainly not. I mean, you've got to look at the footage properly because... You've touched the nerve there, mate. We're Scottish and Henry's our know. hero. No, well, he was mine, to be honest, growing up. But uh, listen, the, the facts are the facts. They, they were bigger in the 80s than anyone that's... were. Still a pair of balls to go for that down the cushion, so. Oh yeah, don't get us wrong. It's still a good shot. It's a great shot. It, you know the, the 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 way the match was. You know the frame score and what it, you know how much it meant to them. But yeah, I mean, he probably thought I just have to get this close, and it's in. <laughs> I was saving this till later, but now his names came up. We've got to ask: What do you make of the comeback? How do you think he'll do? Uh, like I say, um, I don't want to say anything too harsh because <laughs> I do. I, I love Stephen a bit. I respected him as a player when I was growing up. That was that was my hero. Yeah. Like a lot of people had Jimmy White and Ronnie O'Sullivan and all that. Alex Higgins, even Steve Davis. But for me, Hendry was the one that I respected. That was that was kind of who I wanted to be like. I wanted to be someone who could make an impact. Who could just it was just like a winning machine, wasn't he? Yeah, I just wanted to be someone like that. So that was that was my that was my way of thinking. Um, just dominate as much as you can, and uh, yeah. But in terms of his comeback, I've never, I've never thought he was going to do anything. In all honesty, and it stems down to the fact for me that he's just lost his cue action. Yeah, he's 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 got the 
if you've read his book, I don't know the ins and outs, but he, he obviously touches upon the yips that he had in his book yeah. and stuff. And I've seen them when he was playing. Like, I, I'm quite a studier of the cue actions of players as well. You know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a coach in any way, shape or form. I have done coaching in the past and stuff, but I'm a studier of people's cue actions. And I could see it in the last couple of years when he was playing that it was getting worse. He was starting to snatch shots that you shouldn't yeah. be a snatching, really. His cue action was going out the window and it wasn't It wasn't that he didn't know about it. He, he couldn't control it. Yeah. And uh, the only the only hope I had for him coming back, I, listen, I would love for him to have come back and and sort of he's got this confidence from sight right now and hoping yeah. that right all them issues are going to be eradicated. He can sort it out and he'll come back and sort of at least play to a level he was hoping at least to the same as when he retired, hopefully a bit better. But I watched his first game, like everybody, you know, he played Jimmy White. We were all tuned in watching that. And I was thinking, please just, if you're going to come back and you're, you're confident that everything's all right and you just want to see how you get on, no pressure or nothing. You're obviously not expecting to win tournaments or anything like that. Yeah. But just let's see, let's see some old Stephen Hendry. And within two frames, I'm thinking, I don't want to be harsh here. Obviously, he's going to be nervous. He's, you know, it's his first game back. la di da di da You're trying to give the benefit of the doubt. But for me, that... That wasn't even in the equation because I could see shots that he was snatching again straight away, oh, like man. badly. And it's 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 the same with a few players. There's a few players have got this problem, and I've even had it as well. I can actually relate to the problem a lot more than maybe as a lot of other players can. Um, Ding Ding's another player who's got this problem, exactly. and it's when you're when you're hitting the ball hard, or you're hitting it with screw. Them certain shots are the ones where he's 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 snatching them fast. Ding's the same. Any long shot where he's got to hit it with a bit of power. He's great in and around the balls. You know, Ding, he's a great scorer. He's one of the best cue ball controls in the whole game. But when it comes to power shots and like deep screws and long shots, his cue action just fastens up and it just gets quicker and quicker and he can't control that kind of snatch. And Henry's got that a little bit as well. I had it for a little while and I was wondering, why am I doing this? I've controlled it 95% now to the extent where I'm happy. But it's still there with Stephen. He's sort of, them, them yips are still there. So I was... I'm thinking if he's going to carry on this season and he's going to play in tournaments, he needs to eradicate that. If he can't eradicate that, I'm, expect, I'm expecting nothing. And yeah. he can still make centuries. He did against Jimmy. He still had a century in the frame that he won. You know, that's how good the man was. That's how naturally he can break, build and score and play the game of snooker. But the cue action is letting him down. He just doesn't he, look comfortable. He's queuing just no, doesn't look comfortable, does it? It's right. He's, 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 you can see it visibly if you watch him. Like he, the, the, the softer shots and the uh, you know the more controlled shots it's still there a little bit he's controlling yeah. what he's doing as soon as he's hitting the ball hard and playing like a deep screw or something he just throws his cue at it it's, he's not wanting to do that he just can't control it you know and that's where I'm looking at it and I'm going no nah, you haven't you haven't done it mate you, you haven't done what you'd hoped you'd do with Steve and sight right and stuff yeah. and try and eradicate that problem because that was always what was sort of letting him down so I hope I hope he can I hope he can play well this season yeah. and come back a little bit. But it's uh it's not looking good in all honesty, and that's just me being totally honest. So in summary, to be polite, you wouldn't mind getting him in the first round. <laughs> I I wouldn't mind getting him in the first round, but more for the reason that I've never played him before. All yeah. oh, right. Um, and like so when I turned pro the first time, I never got to play him. And when I turned pro the second time round, he'd already just retired the year before. So I'd never managed to play Stephen in a professional tournament. So, and it was actually meant to be this season, just gone there that I was going to. Even that, um, it was the WST Pro Series. It was that new tournament they sort of put on the calendar with the groups and things. I was actually due to play him. I was in his group, and he pulled out of that one. You know, he pulled out a couple of the tournaments, didn't yeah. he, this season? So I was a bit gutted. I was like, oh, I wanted to play Stephen, even if it was just a best of three or anything. It would have been nice to say, oh, I played Henry as well. You know. Yeah. But yeah, I never got to. So yeah, I'm hoping this season I can play him. And in all honesty, I hope he I hope he plays well. Obviously, I want to win. Yeah. But I, I just want to see Stephen playing the way Stephen wants to see himself playing. You know, I want to see him eradicate these problems with his cue action. I want to see him feel confident and just play it at some sort of decent level like he expects to. You know, that would be great. It would be great for the game as well. Now you mentioned the WST that pro series. You did a one four seven there, didn't you? I just. Yes, I yeah, it was that one, yeah. I just That's watched it this morning and it must be the most underrated reaction to a 147 ever. <laughs> yeah, just... obviously with, with no crowd or anything. Do you know what it was? You know the funniest the funniest two little bits of that are? It's me. It's a 147 I can't believe I made because 
right, the, the, well, the, the story starts within the morning before I've even started playing. I turns up at like 10 to 10. It was obviously starting at 10 o'clock in the morning for the group that day. And I've come down and everyone's wearing a waistcoat. And I'm going, what's what's going on here? I, I thought it said no bow tie. I've read in the in the format there's no bow tie or whatever. So it, instantaneously I've just thought, oh, it must be one of them tournaments like the Championship League or whatever, where it's just shirt and trousers. Yeah. And I say, I'm looking around and everyone's wearing a waistcoat. And the referee's come over, he's gone, have you got your waistcoat? I was like, you're joking. I said, I haven't even brought one. <laughs> and he's went, you're kidding. I went, honestly, I'm not joking. You haven't even brought me waistcoat. I thought it was shirt and trousers. He goes, well, you're going to have to find one. And you know, you're not be able to play unless you've got your waistcoat. I goes, what time is it now? He goes, it's 13 minutes to 10. Right, well, uh, what can I do? Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm going. And luckily, at M- MK Don's, like Milton Keynes, where we've been playing all these tournaments, there's, it's like a shopping mall area right outside. So luckily, Marks and Spencer's is open, and obviously this is still COVID stuff and all that as well. So I've literally ran, I've went, right, well, I'm going to have to go to Marks and Spencer's. I goes, I've got no cash on us on out, though. Rob Spencer, one of the refs, he's gone, it's all right, I've got my bank card, I'll come over with you. Right, brilliant. So I'm running over to Marks and Spencer's, went down the lift, straight out, run across there, got my mask on, straight in, I've went, referee's coming over, I need a waistcoat. Like, I mean, I need one now. Not meaning to be rude or funny, I, I need a waistcoat now in my size. What colour? Doesn't matter. Any size, any waistcoat. <laughs> I need you to go upstairs quickly. And I mean quickly because I'm playing at 10 o'clock and I'll be back in like five, 10 minutes. You need to get us a waistcoat now, please. So she's went, oh, uh, 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 she's ran into the lift. She's up the lift, up the top there. Obviously, we're not allowed in properly. Like they're only allowed to go up and get the stuff for you. You couldn't go in and get anything yourself, obviously with COVID restrictions yeah. and stuff. So I'm lucky in one aspect that Marks and Spencer was, was even there two that it was even open and three that she would actually go and help us out and get a waistcoat for us. So she's come running down with this waistcoat and uh, it wasn't too bad. Actually, it fit okay. It was it was roughly my size. It was a little bit Rob, on the large side from what I remember. Aye, Rob's come in. Rob's come running in with a bank card and he's went, don't worry about it, guys. I'll sort this out. There you are. Just, I'll sort the payment out. Just get yourself across. So I've ran out while he's paying for it and uh, I've ran back in with like, two minutes to spare or something. It's like 9.58 and I've come running back in like, yeah, sorted, not a bother, happy days. Went on, played me games. Obviously, there was a few games in the group. And then also I've realised as well, apart from wearing the wrong clothes, because obviously I didn't feel comfortable. You don't feel comfortable unless you're in your own waistcoat and that as well. But aside from that, I'm playing with a tip that's absolutely gone. For some reason, my tip was dead. I'd just had my feral change not long before that. And I'd, just had, I'd actually just had three quarters of an inch taken off my cue, which obviously you might know as a snooker player, that's a pretty drastic change. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, like, I mean, people get little bits off their cue and on, on their cue all the time, but it takes a bit of getting used to, you know, and I'd only had it done about maybe a few days beforehand. And I felt well, something's wrong here. Yeah, I thought my cue's dead, there's something wrong. I can't screw back properly or anything. And I actually thought I'd ruined my cue. And the lad who'd done it, Stewie Green, from Green Bays. He's a great cue maker. Well, he's a, he's a great with cues. He, he, he can fix them. He can fit ferrules. He can do splicings and all sorts. He's a brilliant lad for doing your cue, him and Craig Fitzpatrick. And uh, he says it can happen where if you take too much off, it can actually affect the life in your cue, like the playability of it. I says, well, I'm hoping that's not happening to mine because, Stewie, I'm not kidding you. This is absolutely dreadful. Like, it's just a dead hit on everything. I can't screw back properly or anything. He says, just battle on with it and come back and we'll, 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 we'll hopefully find out what the problem is. Hopefully it's nothing too serious. It turned out there was nothing wrong with my cue. My cue was still fine, but he actually got me tip. And um, if you imagine like three or four layers of cardboard on top of each other, he sort of put his thumb on the side of the tip, scraping it like that, and it sounded like cardboard. And he goes, I know what the problem is straight away. He says, now we do with your cue. He says, you've got an absolute dud tip. He says, it's basically like having a hollow tip. Oh, I was in hollow tip. What do you mean? He says, well, basically, if your tip's like full of leather, like completely full throughout, it's a good tip. But this yeah. this one's got like nothing inside it. I went, I don't know what you mean. He says, well, basically, it's just dead. That's where you're getting your dead hit from. You got you can't get any reaction on it whatsoever. He says, I don't know how you've been playing with that at all. He says that is impossible to do anything with. He says, I'm getting that off for you straight away and putting another one on. You know, he says, I'm telling you, your cue will be fine. So I thought, well, I've just made a max with that. I've managed that. <laughs> As, um, but I, I knew when I was playing the shots on the maximum, like I knew all day when I've been playing in them group games, I thought I can't get any reaction here. So I'm, I'm hoping all the way through that break, if you watch it again, there's certain shots where I've got to screw back quite hard and I'm just throwing, I'm throwing my body into them. Like I'm literally thinking I've got to really get into this, otherwise this is going nowhere. Even 
I think it was the second or third last black with a few reds left. I'm almost straight and I've got to top it in off two cushions to come round for the second last red. And that's just a normal top spin shot. As long as you hit the top of the ball and you time it okay, the spin reacts easily and you come round no bother. But it, because I was getting such a dead hit, I was whacking the top of the cue ball and there was just no spin coming off the cue ball at all. So if you notice on that particular shot, I absolutely cremate the white. <laughs> I mean, I threw, I threw myself at that shot just in the hope that it comes round. And luckily it came round almost just far enough. So I was battling all the way through that break thinking I'm not even wearing the right waistcoat. My tip's knackered. And, and when I made the 147, it, it, for me, it was like a little bit of a self-achievement kind of thing. I know there was no crowd or anything like that, but it was almost... To me, personally, it was more of achievement making that 147 than a lot of breaks I've ever made in my career. It was it was really weird. And I just sort of sat down and I was still unhappy because obviously, in a sense, like I'm happy I've made the 147, but unhappy not knowing what's going on with my queue. I'm thinking, oh, what's going on here? I can't even play pro- like properly, you know? So that's probably why I've sort of just got a blank expression on my face when I sit down and, yeah, it was just like, yeah, whatever. Maybe it was a blessing in disguise. It took your mind off the 147. A little bit, yeah. Like I say, I was just sort of, it was more, it was more of a, like a side challenge. I was more just challenging myself to be able to play the shot still with, with stuff that just wasn't working properly, you know. Like I say, that's when I sat down after it and I was happy to do it, but at the same time, I was I was annoyed at the whole day. I was struggling, you know, so that that was that was probably the reason for the lack of expression at all. I just hope Max and Spencer <laughs> sponsor you after this, after that story. <laughs> oh, honestly. Frightening, but I've had a few bits of luck over the years. There's a few stories, but that was one of them. Yeah, I just couldn't believe that uh, I didn't even know you had to wear a waistcoat and I've had to run to the shop last minute. Crackers. <laughs> now, you've obviously been in in a semi-final at the Crucible. You've been down to that, the fabled one-table setup. How yeah. big a difference... We've been down as fans and obviously we, we love it, but how big a difference is it to you being on a, a one-table in, instead of the, the split screen? Down there, it, it, it's 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 what every player wants to do. I mean, it's it's a cliche. A lot of them say that, but it is. It's like that's the setup. That's the snooker setup. That's the centre court at Wimbledon. You know what I mean? That's that's the one you want to be at. And whether it's the semis or the final, obviously, you just want to get there. You just want to be. You want to end your career knowing that you've at least played in that setup. So for me, it, it meant it meant the world. Obviously, to get to get so far anyway. Having beat Selby, like Luca, then Selby, then to play Ali Cart and knowing that I'm playing that game to get to the one table, table set up in the Crucible, it just means the world. And when I done it, obviously I was like a little bit of relief. I mean, I I'd had a quite a few years, obviously battling away on the tour, not really fulfilling any potential as such, not really doing too great in many tournaments. I'd had a final in China, a couple of semis, but really not having done anything. So just to get to the semis of that. And and sort of fulfill that dream of like going, all oh, right, I'm at one table set up at the Crucible. I can sort of tick that off the list now. It was just a massive relief more than anything else. So I knew that I could finish my career saying, oh, I've played there. I know what that's like, you know, like, and and it was brilliant as well. It, it, the, the way they've done it, it changes each year, it seems as well. Obviously with COVID, it hasn't been the same. Um, I'm glad I've done it when I did because this last year or two hasn't been the same. Obviously we're lack of crowds, but even just the little things that you might not even notice, just be it the way we walked on in that semi-final. They'd done it for the semi-final, what they only normally do for the final. Um, they had them, they were, they had were walking from the steps up above and you could come like down the steps and everything. It was just a much better way of walking on as well. They used to only save that for the final or even the night sessions of finals and stuff, you know? So we had we had all four sessions where we were introduced that way and it, would, it just made it that bit extra special as well, like a full packed house. First time I've ever played in the semi-finals of the World Championships. One table set up and I'm coming in from the top corner down the steps and everything. And I was brilliant. Um, so that's that's the biggest memory I'll take from that. It's just, it all kind of clicked into place and it was really nice, yeah. It would be fair to say that, and I don't know if the best way to say this is you fell in and out of love with the game a little bit or maybe even fell in and out of love with yourself. But you've had your ups and downs with, with, with snooker. Um, you know, it's, yeah. How are you at the moment with things? Um, yeah, it, it would be true to say that, like, again, like a lot of players, I mean, you, you go through spells, don't you, where you, you want to give up. I mean, a lot of players would probably say the same. There's been a, maybe a stage or a couple of stages in their career where they've thought, oh, I'm seriously going to give this up. You know, I, I can't do this anymore. But obviously when things turn and you're, you're, do, you're doing okay, you're making money out of the game, you're progressing up the rankings, 
comes a lot easier. You know, people tend to tend to want to give up more because it's just a waste of time. They're not even making any money out of it or anything, you know, but my focus has changed now. Uh, I'm not really too fussed about the money side of things. The way Barry Hearns ran it the last number of years, that takes care of itself. It's there now. Well, I obviously want to win a tournament. I still haven't won my first tournament yet. I still haven't achieved the things I, I'm, I know I'm capable of achieving. So, yeah, my, my my sort of ambitions going into this season are win a tournament and try and get myself towards the top 16 I again if I can. 33, 4 now or something? Yeah, that good run that I had in the World Championships like a couple of years ago, I knew that money was coming off like this year. I don't know if you know the way the rankings work. So I'm like a two-year two rolling uh... system. Yeah, so whatever you've done two years ago to this point, it comes off. So when this World Championship came around, I knew I had 100,000 coming off. So I was prepared for it. I knew it was coming. And unless I got to the semis again this year, it was always going to be a drop in the rankings. So yeah, it's disappointing. I'm, I'm disappointed I haven't had a, I haven't pushed on from that really. But I know I'm capable of pushing myself back up there again. So I just want to hopefully have a good season this season. Um, hopefully COVID's more yeah. out of the way. We can get back to a bit more normality. I'm I'm a player I've found the last over the last year or two that I do suit the ones where there's there's different venues to go to, different tournaments. It's fresh, it's different, it's new. Um, I, I hated going to Milton Keynes constantly over and over again. I think it's one of them as well, though, that if you go there and you, you have a good run in a couple of tournaments back to back straight away, then you're all right. It's as if like, oh, I like yeah. this venue. I can play here. I don't mind coming back over and over again. But if it's on the other hand, you're going there and you've you've lost your first couple of games and you, you're losing the next tournament and the next one. For me, it became a place where I hated going there because I just couldn't get a result. I couldn't play well for, for yeah. whatever reason. I, I should have liked it. I liked the setup. I liked being sort of just in a bit of a bubble, really, like not having to worry about doing anything other than going down, chilling in my room, having a bath, chilling out, yeah. you know, going to play my matches. Buying a waistcoat, I just just relaxing though. Generally, it was my kind of thing. I'm I'm quite a hermit when I want to be. I can easily just go to a tournament and not worry about going outside doing this, that, and the other. I'll happily stay in the room for most of the day. So it should have suited us. But when I kept losing and kept losing, for some reason I kept going down and thinking, "Am I going to win here? Like, is there any? Am I going to win a game this season here or what?" And I didn't win many. I had a really, really it's the worst season I've ever had. I could hardly win a game. I only won some games in the Championship League and then the Worlds. The Worlds has finished off my season a bit better. But um, yeah, it was, it's been an awful season, so I'm just hoping a bit more normality comes this time around and we can start getting to some different venues again because uh, I think that suits me a lot better, just having that fresh side of things in different places. So the confidence is still there, yeah? Yeah, like the last the last sort of, I'd say since January, I, like I say, I was really practising hard again on my own table, my own setup. Eight hours a day, I was feeling confident. I was feeling much better than I'd been feeling for about a year or two. So I knew coming into the World Championships that I was I was ready to play. I didn't know if I was going to win. You never do. Obviously, the standards are high. Obviously, first round, you don't want to be getting beaten in the qualifying of the World Championships. But I got through that one. And after that, I played really well against Stephen Holworth. So I was just a little bit disappointed I didn't quite get the result I wanted against Kyron. Started off great, 5-1 up and playing pretty well. He's a top player. He's a top solid player. And um, you can't sort of give these players opportunities at certain times in the match and expect to get away with it. And uh, yeah, it was just one of them games where he, he did. He just he, he got better and better as it went on. And I was, I was just disappointed to sort of end the season a little bit earlier than I hoped. I, I was hoping to push on in that world. So I felt I was ready to start playing well again, like I did two years previous. So all in all, terrible season, but it was nice to finish off with a little bit of a high, at least getting back to the crucible and sort of hopefully now push on this season at a bit more normality again. Do you enjoy the amount of tournaments now? Because, you know, like Ronnie famously moaned about the grind and all that now. Do you not mind this? Do you love it? Yeah. We love it because we're not making all the mega bucks like he <laughs> is, you know? So, yeah, we bring on 55 tournaments a year for me. <laughs> when you're him and you're making mega millions every year, you only want to three tournaments to play and that's fine. But, you know, we've got to make some dosh. So, uh, yeah, I'd take one every week. Um, if I'm going in the club, Eight till uh, ten till six, doing eight hours a day, or I'm going to a tournament. Well, I'd rather be going to a tournament because I've got chance of making money there. I haven't down the club unless I'm starting to hustle a few of the locals <laughs> or something. But I've got to start giving them 140 stars, so <laughs> that can go one of two ways very quickly. 
Um, I'd rather be at the tournament side, so give me a tournament every week. As long as we keep getting new territories and new places to play, then all that says is that the game's getting more global and more popular, which can only be better for us because we're going to be making more money and going more tournaments. So, As long as you keep coming back to Scotland. Oh, I'd love to come back to Scotland, I. Um, the, the Obviously, the Scottish Open. We missed. We, we didn't get to do it in Scotland. Yeah. Obviously, it was Milton Keynes again, wasn't it? But yeah, I like that. I like that tournament. I like the Emirates Arena, and um, my family's half Scottish, right, so okay. I know the uh, area it's quite the ginger well. Ginger thing, there we go. <laughs> 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 probably. Well, I just it's funny that my cousin put something on Facebook the other day. She's done one of these tests. My dad says English as far as I as far as I was aware. Like he was born and bred in Wall's End, and. But she's done this, you can do this sort of DNA testing, can't you, where you pay like 70, 80 quid and it traces back like where your ancestry is from and all this. And it turns out I'm I'm Irish. There's like I there's a lot of there's a lot of Irish in there as well. So I think I'm uh, and, and there's some some part of France as well or something. So I'm Irish, French, English, Scottish, the lot. I, I don't know what I am, to be honest. But yeah, that was a surprise. It turned out as a there's quite a bit of Irish in us apparently as well. So I've got my mum's side who are Scottish and my dad's side, who I thought was English, I was actually English and Irish and all sorts. So that's that's why I'm mixed up. I've got like darkish hair, ginger beard. I don't know what I am. <laughs> now you've brought up hair. I'm going to have to ask. <laughs> I haven't got any. <laughs> no, you don't. You know, obviously Neil Robertson's had the big, huge barnet when he was playing there. But yeah. I've seen a couple of pictures where you've had what we can only describe as the reverse mohawk. Well, you've had the old Mohican yeah. coming out the back. We'll call it the backhawk. That's it? what it was. I... <laughs> what was that all about? Oh, just boredom. <laughs> I mean, when I when I used to have hair, like a long, long time ago, I mean, you, you might know yourself. I don't know when you started losing a bit, but I was like 19, 20 years old when I could start seeing a bit of a receding hairline coming in and I was devastated thinking, oh, don't let this be the start of looking like my dad because he's bald okay. as well. I'm thinking, oh, no, this is it. And uh, when I had hair at that stage, though, when I was younger, I used to get it like dyed, not like Robertson, like not, but that kind of style. I had a sort of like sticky up blonde kind of hairstyle, you know, like the, a lot of people yeah, did yeah. in it like 15, 20 years ago. I had that kind of hairstyle a lot, but then I couldn't get, I couldn't keep it up very much because my hair was starting to recede more and more. So my hair, my hairstyle was getting shorter and shorter to try and like keep that looking okay. And then in my mid twenties, it was just like a waste of time that the patch at the back started coming as well. <laughs> No, oh no, that's definitely the end. I've I've receded already a bit, and now I'm getting the patch on the top. I thought, oh no, but whenever I could, I would always have fancy hairstyles, daft colours, like just just boredom and just expressing myself a bit, I guess. But yeah, so I thought, well, what am I going to do? I've been bald for a while now, <laughs> and I thought I'm getting bored, and I'm, I'm chatting on to Elliot, and it all started really. We were just in the club talking about characters of films and stuff. And do you know the film Kickboxer with uh, yeah, Jean-Claude yeah. Van Damme? And he plays, he, he fights the, the Thai yeah. bloke in it. He was, at the end, he was basically got a fully bald head other than this one part where it's just a big black yeah. ponytail, big long black ponytail, but the rest of it's all shaved and bald. And we were just laughing about him and stuff. And 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 he goes, you should grow a tongue po, you know. I goes, what do you mean? I've got knee hair. He says, well, you can grow it at the back. I goes, well... I suppose, like, I says, I, I mean, I've got nothing on the top, but I can still grow it on the back and the sides, no problem. I thought, well, I'm, I'm up for doing some daft, like, it's been, a, it's been a good while since I've had, like, a decent hairstyle, and if I kind of dean out on top, I might as well try and do something with the rest of it. So it started, that that was always the main goal, was to grow a tongue po, grow a ponytail on the back of my head. So it started with just going down to the hairdressers that I'd used for years. Like I say, I used to have daft hairstyles all the time. And he's, he's dyed me hair, all sorts of colours, all sorts of different weird cuts and all that. I comes in this one day, I goes, Tom, we're going to do something mad, right? I've grown my hair, so my hair, if you imagine on the back of the sides, was probably <laughs> that long. And like, wasn't nothing on the top, obviously. I says, right, we're going to we're gonna leave that on the back. We're going to leave like a like a landing strip on the back, basically, because I'm, I'm, I've got some, I've got a plan. So, so just leave that on the back and shave the rest of it. And so at first I thought, well, to not have it look so stupid, and it, it's obviously too small for a ponytail, I'll just keep it like as a backhawk. So I'll, I'll just, I'll just keep that whole section and just stick it up, and maybe dye it different colours. So that's how it started. I went to China, I think, and it was red. I had like a big red backhawk, and then I had it green, I had it yellow, and then once it, once it was growing longer and longer, and it was sort of about you know maybe four or five inches long, it was getting too long to keep sticking up. 
And it got to the point where I was like, right, I'm going to chop the rest of it off, Tom. I went back in. I said, get it chopped off and we're going to leave a circle there. He said, what are you doing? I goes, well, we're going to have like a ponytail. I said, this is what I've been building up to. He says, oh, you're joking. He goes, I'm not putting my name to this, mind. I'm not putting this on my website. And I'm like, <laughs> I was fine. Don't worry about it. Just, just get it done. Get it looking neat and tidy. I trust you. I said, just, just eat the best way you think you can. And he goes, oh, I goes, by the way, we're dying in black as well. Uh, right, okay. So my hair's obviously like just a brownie colour anyway. He's got the black hair dye out. He's like slapping it on. He's got this. So I come to the shop with about a five or six inch long ponytail, like nothing else around it at all. And uh, I shows Elliot because obviously he thought I would never do it. And it wasn't like a bet, but he just we just sort of had a bit of banter about it and he thought I wasn't going to do it. And I took a photo of it and showed him and he was just laughing his head off. And I goes, I'll tell you what I'm going to do now. I'm even going to have like bobbles in it with the colours of the flags of the places I'm going to for the tournaments and stuff. So I don't know if you've even seen, but there's there's pictures of us when I'm in the Indian Open and obviously the flags like orange, white and green. And I've got like an orange, a white and a green like port, like bobble in my hair just for the flag of the country and that. And I've done that for a few tournaments as well. So it was like red for the Welsh and blue for the Scottish or whatever. And and then, uh, yeah, then I got bored of that. That, that. that After about six months or something, that passed and... Uh, shaved it off again and then and then I brought it back again didn't I about a year or two ago I, I just brought the hawk back again a little bit and so I, any ideas I'm, I'm open to them like if you can think of it and do me here I don't have ideas but this story's made me want to go out for a night out with you <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm pretty daft like I, I would say I'm pretty yeah uh, I'm pretty do you like there. all the martial arts films that you because you were talking about blood sport and kickboxing and that do you like all that yeah. sort of stuff I do love the martial arts films like Bloodsport and Kickboxer, yeah, and Karate Kid. I like Karate Kid and stuff and all that so as well. So on that theme, who would you not mess with on tour? Uh, ooh, tough one. I mean, I bet you Maguire's a handful, <laughs> mind. I bet you oh. when you get... He's a lovely bloke, but I bet you, I bet you when you get on the wrong side he's, of him, oh, he's a he's handful. A, he's like. a bit of a chubster, though. He's carrying a bit of beef. Ah, he's, he's put on a bit of timber in the last few years. Yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't mind us saying, but uh, he's probably a bit of a handful. You could take the captain, though, wouldn't couldn't you? Yeah, definitely. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't mind that to be a bit of a, a bit of a, there's a bit of anger oh, there, isn't there? Oh, oh, he's, a, he's a feisty character. Feisty, which I uh, I can relate to. I'm pretty feisty myself. But, uh, you should actually call yourself yeah. the Ginger Ninja if you're in Cobra Kai. The ginger and stuff. Ninja, right? Exactly, yeah, it's a good night. Come out, come out with the oh, bandana. That'd be amazing. On I'd love that. <laughs> right, there's a plan. Bandana, one of the next one. Daft things, but yeah, that's a, that's a one. Put a bandana on. I might give that a oh, try next. Two years. That's on us. Did you ever play the old Tekken games on the PlayStation? Yeah, yeah. The old fighting games, Tekken. Well, there's a character, the main character, and that's called Hayachi. Yeah. And he's got a bald head like me, but on the sides, his hair sticks right up that's on right. both sides like that. You remember him? Yeah. yeah. So that was the one that was uh, that was talked about not long ago, that if I was to grow my hair again, I'd grow a hair wow. cheek. So there'd just be big spiky hair on both sides for no, and on the back and that as well for no reason, just other than to just to do it for a laugh. Certainly. So that might come next. We'll I'm see. <laughs> I want to finish up just asking a, a couple of questions on in particular shots. We're, we're a bit snooker geeky, so we'll just drill it down to a couple of shots. One of the right. ones was the, the infamous game against John Higgins where you obviously, you missed, was it the blue? And then you, you know, you, you did the... Oh, right. yeah, yeah. Would you say you were conceding that frame or was that just frustration and lashing out? Um, so obviously I, I didn't intend to concede in my head. That was just me yeah. lashing out. That was me just seeing red for a couple of seconds and just lashing out. And obviously, once I'd done it, I had to start thinking about how I'm going to handle a situation, <laughs> you know, because it wasn't my intention to yeah. concede as such. So, yeah, obviously, I mean, it's been talked about a little bit and I've talked openly about it that I, I, I was get, I was going through a bit of depression yeah. for a while, for quite a number of months. And um, this was sort of getting towards the end of that, but I was still feeling pretty bad about things. Um, with snooker, with life in general, like all sorts, you know, and just in that game against John, it just sort of all came to a head and it exploded a little bit, you know, and missed such an easy ball in the middle. And just, I just, just when you see red for a couple of seconds, I just, I missed that ball and I just seen red. And I just, the first thing that's front of your mind was just, <laughs> <laughs> just, hit, just hit it as hard as you can and just release some anger. Like I just felt I had to do it on the spot. As soon as I've done it and it's obviously flew in the corner and it was a foul. Well, the first thing I thought is, well, what am I going to do here? The ref's asked is Paul Collier. He's going, 
Um, is that a concession? Now, my first reaction to that in my own head was, well, like, no, it's not because I didn't intend to concede. So I'm just going to, I'm going to, I didn't know what I was doing, but I thought I'll, I'll just go with what I'm feeling and being honest to myself with. So my answer is no, it's not. It's just a foul. And I'll just go from there and see what, see how, see how it progresses, see, see how he wants to deal with the situation, you know? So I says, no, it's not. It's, uh, it's just a foul. He went, just a foul. I went, yeah. So if he's asking us the question, I've given the answer. Where do we go from here? And uh, he's accepted that. And then obviously from there, I'm thinking, well, that's not fair on John. Uh, how do I sort of rectify that side of things? And I've obviously apologised to John straight away and says, look, like really sorry about that. It's just, just you know, you know what it's like when he was like, hey, Gary, I know it happens to us all, happens to us all. I was just sitting in the chair saying that, you know, at the end of the frame. But during the frame, I thought to put this right, I'm going to have to put the ball over the pocket or something or not so much concede, but but kind of concede at the same time without giving myself a fine. Because that was the other yeah. thing I'm thinking. If I do oh, concede course, as yes. well, it's an automatic 250 quid fine. Now, I didn't I didn't want to pay that. <laughs> not that it was a lot of money or, you know, to do with that side of things, but I didn't want to be um, having to go through that. You know, like uh, for me, it was just a case, well, I'll just not concede officially but I'll con- kind of concede anyway by sort of handing in the frame. And I thought that would be the issue hopefully resolved. But obviously when you get to the technicality of the rules, I still got an email a few days later anyway saying you've breached the rules. Yeah, you've, you've breached the rules in that one, although you didn't concede and you did try and rectify the situation, like morally kind of thing, um, you've breached rule articles such and such point one or whatever, which says that you've got to try your best yeah. at all parts of the game. And that obviously by effectively rolling a ball over the pocket you've not played to the best of your ability and so I was still done on the rules anyway even though I didn't concede and I still got a 250 fine <laughs> anyway right. so yeah so I, you just take it on the chain I mean there was no way around it I took it on the chain and it is what it is but yeah it's all the gambling things isn't it they're just trying to keep keep their nose clean isn't it but yeah I, I see I, I have no problem with that if it's in the rules and it's stated quite clearly in black and white that, that you can't do this and you can't do that then I'm I'm 100% fine with it. Yeah, I didn't intend to concede. Yeah, I didn't feel like I've done anything wrong as such. I've still let it, I've still sort of, in terms of the sportsmanship of the game, I've still given them the frame and and hopefully just let things carry on from there. But I can see the other sides of it. I mean, there was scenarios come up, but what if you'd done that when there was so many points in the game and that meant that you now needed snookers? Well, obviously me as the player, I would still try and rectify that situation by kind of handing yeah. them the frame. I'm just trying to not do it officially by going, yeah, concede 250 quid automatically, fine. But I got a fine anyway. So I'm totally fine with that. Totally no no problem with it whatsoever. Like I say, it was just one of them times where I was feeling a bit down. I've seen red and uh, that was it. As far as I'm concerned, that's it done and dusted and no more needs to really be like sort of analysed yeah, about right. it other than that. That's the truth, you know? Yeah. The other shot I wanted to ask you about, and I've, uh, it's just a, went out of my head who you were playing against, but it's been called one of the best escapes from a snooker that anyone has ever seen. You were tucked up behind the green, right, right up the right up in the top. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've like right near yeah, the yeah, cushion. Yeah. It's got a thread through a couple of colours and come down, hit the reds. It was a very good shot, that <laughs> to be honest. But it was it wasn't the best one. Um, the best one for me doesn't get doesn't get talked about as much as that one. The other one was where. I've had to come off a couple of cushions and literally rest on the red. I've seen that on the right-hand side. But yeah, you had to be yeah, dead weight. If I don't, yeah, if I don't get that right and I come either side of the red, I leave him a shot on and he's already 20 or 30 ahead with balls tied up as well. So if I didn't get that escape right and land right on that red the way I did, I could have, I could have lost the match there and then. Um, so it was actually, for me, it was a much better shot. Right, for our listeners, I'm going to post them on our website so you can see them. Absolutely. (laughs) Final question from me. Jamie might have more, but it's been well documented how frustrated you'd been by it. How's the house coming on? Is it finally finished? It's not finally finished, but it's it's getting there. Like I say, I'm sitting in the games room now, so obviously it's been an absolute nightmare, as you'll have heard, but um, we're getting it pretty much sorted now. It's lovely, you know, it's it's now special. It's just a semi-detached house. It's now massive or special, but to us, every room's got its purpose now. The only way I'd move now is obviously if I started doing really well, um, making mega money and getting to the point where I'm like, right, we're going to get our last forever home then, 
you know, somewhere with a, maybe a much bigger garden and, you know, like a, a proper nice house in it. But we're, we're more than happy where we are now and what we've done to this house. It's, it's got everything we need. You said, so that'll you said do for James it. room, you got a table at home, like a pool table or anything like that? No, no, we wouldn't have the space. Like I say, it's, and plus I'm not even that bothered about having my own table at home. I actually like the idea of going in the club. It's more like yeah. a work kind of environment, if you know what I mean. And I've heard stories of players like Higgins even in the past where they just get lazy with that table at home and they don't even end up playing on it. Yeah, I'd rather go down the club, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy to not have a table ever, really, in my own house. That's fine well, by subject me. Subject to pool, I just mentioned pool there. Do you ever play pool when you're on a night out? I sometimes, like... Um, yeah, not so much games of pool, but like killer especially. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, maybe it's all chuck a fiver in or something and have a game of killer or something. You just, just... think it's a toy that, like pool? It's just shit, isn't it? It's shit. <laughs> uh, it's, <laughs> it's not snooker, is it? I mean, don't get us wrong. I respect the top players like I do in any sport. You know, I respect them because at the end of the day, pool is an easier game. We know that. It's a, it is an easier game. But in, in one sense, you've almost got to have more respect for the pool players because especially like the nine ball players and stuff like that. The table's so easy in a sense that if you're going to like do well at that game, be world champion or dominate in any kind of way and be top of the rankings, you have got to not miss yeah. ever. You've got to be consistent. Yeah, like every rack, you've got to be you've got to be consistent over and over again, not miss any easy balls. Because if you do, that can be your last shot. And that's that's where I've got the respect for that game is just the the intensity, the level that you've got to keep up to over and over again. We all know it's an easier game. We all know it's, you know, you can you can you can miss balls and still pop them and stuff. But it's not really about that. Yeah. Then it's it's about keeping that level over and over again. Gary, this has been brilliant. Thank you very much for the the time that you've spent with us. We'd love to get you on when you win that first tournament. We'll get another chat with you. Hopefully that'll be next season. Yeah. All the best with the wedding no, next well, year I. as well. Thanks, mate. Ah, yeah. Hopefully, um, we'll postpone it once. Hopefully, we don't have to postpone Fingers it again. Crossed. But yeah, thanks and very much. All the best, and thanks for coming on. No problem. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much. See you there. You've been listening to the Smokies and Wine podcast, sponsored by Clack and View Wealth Management, working with you today to plan for your tomorrow.